much to the dismay of some editors that I've worked with and managed in the past, I don't think as a business editor or finance editor, and I don't know if it's true for all publishing, but I don't think it's my job to predict what's going to be a bestseller. I think that's a losing proposition. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello and welcome back to the Author's Corner, and thanks for joining us for the first episode of Season 6 in our Author's Corner journey. It's amazing to think that we are on six seasons already. And what better way to kick off the next season than to have with us a very special guest, editor-in-chief of a very important independent press, Ben Bella Publishing House the imprint Matt Holt Books, and our guest is indeed Matt Holt. Now, Matt was previously Senior Vice President and Executive Publisher at John Wiley & Sons, where he oversaw a team of 85 staffers. And over Matt's 27-year career, he's acquired over 1,000 titles and published 10,000 titles, including John Gordon's Energy Bus, Larry Wingett's Shut Up, Stop Whining and Get a Life, and Patrick Lencioni's The Ideal Team Player, uh, Jeffrey Gittimer's The Sales Bible, Ben Stein's What Would Ben Stein Do?, and David Miriman Scott, New Rules of Marketing and PR, and of course, the list goes on and on and on. He loves to focus on titles in the areas of business, finance, and professional development. And today, Matt is going to give us the inside scoop on what he looks for in authors, and what his beliefs are, and not only beliefs, what his experience tells him, goes into a successful book. Enjoy. Welcome to the Author's Corner, Matt. Thank you, Robin. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, you know, the um, there, there's so many people who have questions about the traditional publishing industry and how it works and how to navigate it. And it can just seem so daunting and so intimidating. And so to have someone like you here today, I know will just be a big treat for our listeners. And so I guess before we get into the nitty gritties of publishing with a traditional publisher, let's tell our readers a little bit about your background and how you got started in this field, because I think that that will also, you know, I'm sure there will be some nuggets in there as well. Uh, sure. Not super exciting story. And if I cough every once in a while, just uh, it's so hot down here in Nashville and allergies are acting up. This is my 30th year in um, primarily business publishing, business and finance, certainly nonfiction. I grew up in uh, Southern California and San Diego and went to school there and uh, just so happened to get a job out of college at a small independent publisher. Uh, I will note that uh, anybody that's interested in publishing, you know, take heed, making a lot less than what I made working two part-time jobs during college. So, Right. Yes. 
You don't go into publishing to get that's, rich. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So th- this was around 1993 or so. And then briefly left. Uh, that company started to go bankrupt. I left and went to go uh, move to Iowa, of all places, and worked in the video training world. For people that don't know, Iowa, Des Moines was the video training capital of the world during the 90s. And then that yeah. company that I worked for got bought out of bankruptcy by a company called Josie Bass in San Francisco, and they asked me to come back. So I moved to San Francisco and was at Josie Bass for a while. And then they were sold to John Wiley and Sons. And uh, and then I moved, uh, I think around 98, 99, and then was living in San Francisco in the Bay Area and then decided to move to New York City and came, I don't know, three weeks after 9-11, actually, uh, in Brooklyn and uh, worked at Wiley up until 2020. So 24 years, all in all, at Wiley and Josie Bass, and then joined Ben Bella in uh, March of 2020, right as the pandemic was starting. So great timing uh, in my career, or terrible timing in my career. Right. (laughs) So, and, and the years at John Wiley, you were also doing business primarily? That's right. I was a business editor for a long time there, and then became the business publisher around 2008 or so, and then became the executive publisher for all of the trade programs, dummies and computer and Josie Bass and business and finance and accounting. So I became executive publisher for all of the trade around 2016, maybe. It's hard to say. Yeah. And then, then left, uh, left New York in, in March, decided to leave Wiley around 2019 during the year, and then made the decision and announced it at the beginning of 2020. And then uh, move from Brooklyn, where I was for all those years, down to a house I have here in Nashville, Tennessee. So you were able to arrange to not have to live in the city, in the central capital of publishing of the world. <laughs> That's right. Ben Bella's uh, 21 or 22 years old. I should know this, but I don't. And Ben Bella went virtual about seven or eight years ago. So long before. Yeah. So the deal was I could live anywhere. Uh, I have a house in Mexico that I kind of escape to sometimes in the wintertime and work down there a little bit, and then mostly in Nashville. So what would you say, because you've, you've been in publishing so many years, what are some of the big changes that you've noticed in the industry since you first came in? Well, I think several. One is kind of consolidation, which has happened over the years mm. that continues to happen. Yeah. Um, my guess is the kind of the big seismic ones are Amazon. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. for business publishing and probably for a lot of nonfiction. For business, it's probably 70% of the market uh, is an Amazon sale. Uh, it's wow. it's not uncommon to people to go into retailers, both chain, chainlets and independents and use those as kind of um, shopping uh, centers and go in like there, showroom, showroom kind of, yeah. and, and go and look <laughs> yeah. and touch a book and, and then end up going on their phone and buying a book. So Amazon, you know, the rise of eBooks, when eBooks started to become mm-hmm. popular, mostly because of Kindle, you know, it was a pretty quick hockey stick up in terms of sales and there was no idea how big it would get. Um, again, for business books, uh, we find that it's probably 10 to 15% of sales. Uh, mm-hmm. compared to the physical, and then audio. Um, I was going to say, what about Audible? Because every CEO I know likes to listen to their books now yeah. on, on, when they're when they're in the car, when they're jogging. I would say it's probably a little more. It can be 15 to 20%. Audio is weird because 
most audio sales are through the Audible subscription. So it's what's called a token sale uh, versus going on Amazon.com and buying the book or downloading it. And of course, now we have streaming and, you know, some publishers are getting into streaming and some aren't. And it causes a lot of, you know, questions with agents and authors and rights holders and that kind of stuff. So I would say that the biggest seismic changes are Amazon ebook, audio consolidation, and then self-publishing has become much more easy right. for people and it's democratized it a bit. And uh, so just a lot more books coming out from a lot of different places. So do you want to get out your crystal ball and speculate as to where you think publishing might Absolutely be headed? Absolutely not. You know, there's that, there's, <laughs> there, there, there is an old joke and I don't know when I first heard it, but there's an old joke that said, you know, do you know the name of the second book that came off the Gutenberg Press? And it was something like the forthcoming end of publishing. So, you know, (laughs) since I got into publishing, and I had no idea I was going into publishing, it was just, it was the early 90s, and it was the best job I could get at the time. It was a recession, and things weren't great, but I was a business major, and I loved, I wasn't an English major, I was a business major, and I was reading a lot of business books, of course, and I just had an affinity for it and loved it. But ever since that, I joined in the early 90s, you know, people have been prognosticating that publishing was ending, that it was going to be, mm-hmm. you know, somehow in some sense of uh, disruption or upheaval and certainly disruption in, in certain regards. And then now, of course, AI and, you know, what that means. And then there was a, just a new case or a new decision that was made that was AI is not copyrightable, which is interesting. And I think actually healthy both for oh, publishing yeah. and for visual media and audio, you know, artists, because if you can you know, fake somebody's voice or have a computer author a book, you know, it's, it brings yeah. up a lot of ethical questions. But I am not, uh, and this kind of is similar to my acquisition style and editorial, much to the dismay of some editors that I've worked with and managed in the past, is that I don't think as a business editor or finance editor, and I don't know if it's true for all publishing, but it, I don't think it's my job to predict what's going to be a bestseller. I don't think I think that's a losing proposition. And you, like yeah. most of publishing, you end up picking a couple examples where you did well. It's like gambling. You mm-hmm. picked a couple examples where you did well and said, see, I've done this. I've predicted. And then I would say, well, show me the hundred other times that you failed. Right. So it's that uh, there's a term for that. I think it's like selective. Yes. Select, bias yeah. Or something, something. Like success bias yeah. or something. Just remembering the ones that, that worked. So, okay. So let's, let's get down to what I'm sure our listeners are really curious about, which is how how do you pick the books that you publish? How do you decide who to publish and who to pass? Sure. I mean, it's, and then, and what I would tell authors is there, there are, there's plenty of uh, experiences in the past where someone has either self-published because no one would pick up their book or were turned down a million times. You know, the Chicken Soup for the Soul book was passed around forever. I I grew up in San Diego where Ken Blanchard reigns still to this day. Mm. And One Minute Manager was a big business book forever and still sells well. That was rejected by like 20 publishers, I think. My opinion, my view is just that. There are a lot of Amazing editors and publishers and most of the people in the business are in it for the right reasons and have their own philosophy. So I'm just giving you my philosophy and whether it's uh, laziness or experience of 30 years or both, I generally, uh, and I also will violate these rules all the time. So 
don't, <laughs> uh, don't take them to that much heart. But in generally, there's probably three criteria that I look at. And the first one is, is this author that's presenting themselves, whether it's presenting themselves through an agent, which is great, or unagented. And we, we are fine with unagented authors as well. Uh, some publishers are, some don't uh, like that. But uh, is this author that's presenting themselves, are they the right person to write this book? Are they experienced? Are they qualified? Do they have positional authority? Are they the right person to author this kind of book? Secondly, does it look like there's a market for this book? Uh, in the business space, you know, we work with a lot of consultants and speakers and leaders, and I want to know they're busy. I want to know that they almost don't have time to write a book because they're so busy right. in their work. If an author calls or emails and says, you know what, I, I, I'm not working a lot now, I certainly sympathize with them, but I need people that their ideas are in demand because there's a lot of people in the world, a lot of clients that can't afford them or don't have access to them. But if they write a book and they're in demand, then mm -hmm. people will buy the book. So first off, are they the right people? Is there a market for the book? Kind of the third one, which is a little squishy, is would I want to have a beer with them? Would I want to have a meal with them? Are they a nice person or nice enough person? Because this business, like most other businesses, is a relationship-built business. And if we're going to work together, it's not a marriage, but it's a long-dating uh, uh, relationship. So <laughs> I want to know that they're going to be open and honest and respectful to me and my colleagues. And vice versa, we're going to do everything we can to delight and satisfy them. But there has to be a shared vision for why we're doing this and some respect that goes along with this. That's probably the three main criteria. And then, you know, it always helps if someone has what we call a platform, which is the ability to get in front of potential readers and influence them, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, speaking or consulting or they have a podcast or an email list or a blog or whatever. We want authors that have the ability to get in front of people to influence them and fans to buy their books. And that is the big piece that, you know, I think every publisher is really looking for for those things actually, but and this sure. and the platform tends to be a pretty major piece of that. You know, when I when, when I first started in publishing up until probably the mid-90s before I joined joined Wiley and then when I joined Wiley, platform was really not something that a lot of people cared about. Certainly upset yes. salespeople because the balance of power shifted certainly bothered editors where they thought they were the maker and market makers or the book, you know, they were the, and the authors were saying, listen, you do what you do. We do what we do, regardless of whether or not you can get our books into stores. We have a lot of people that will buy the book because we are exposed to a lot of clients and fans. And that, I guess that is another kind of starting at the beginning of our conversation, another shift in the market, which is more equal footing, mm -hmm. or even in some regard, weighted more heavily on the authors in terms of the power to sell and market. I've definitely seen that. And I think that the advent of social media definitely had an impact on that because people could have more direct interaction with their audiences. Or I don't know, maybe just it changed the expectation because people started yeah. building these large social followings, which don't actually necessarily translate to book sales, ironically. But... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like the music business. I have friends in the music business. And a long time ago, you got the record contract, you made the money, 
hopefully, but probably not. And then you went on the road to help sell the album. And now it's you're kind of on the road and you're making your money there. And the album is kind of what you're maybe you're playing and you're selling in the in the back of the room. And I think for authors, uh, a lot of the really savvy authors or the realistic authors or, or whatever you want to however you want to categorize them, the book is a tool for a lot of them. Now we want books that help people and improve people's lives and whatever. Certainly, however. The authors see the book. A lot of authors see the book as a way to market themselves, is to differentiate themselves from their clients, is a way to break out from all the noise in the marketplace, et cetera. So um, that's definitely been a pretty big shift too. You know, a perfect author, other than a, as, as I had a conversation with an author in the last couple of days, it's fairly wealthy when he asked what's a perfect author. And I said, it's a billionaire with a healthy ego that wants to win. Yeah, <laughs> kind of rare, but in a in a perfect world, you know, you've got this Venn diagram where yeah. it's great book is a circle, and then great author platform. If you can get them to over, the more you can get those to overlap, the more chance mm-hmm. you have for a book to succeed. And even then, despite that, there are plenty of books out there where great author, great book, great platform doesn't resonate with the audience, and it doesn't work. So it's not mm-hmm. not always predictable, despite the fact that we think that we can use BookScan and, and Amazon rankings and, and past, past performance of books and like books and comparisons and competition. It's still pretty hard to predict which book was going to be a runaway bestseller. You get a chance uh, mm-hmm. in a sense over the years of whether or not something's a better bet than not to be successful. But the difference between 10,000 books and a hundred thousand books or a million books <laughs> is pretty sizable. Yes, yes, and it it, it definitely is a, a whole different series of events, if you will, or or just a magnification of of the same events. And sometimes, <laughs> it's, and sometimes something happens. Uh, again, one minute manager is a business fable. It's a kids' book for an adult that changed, mm-hmm. you know, that changed the market, and then fables became something. Four color yeah. books came out uh, in the 2000s. We were luckier, uh, the teens, early teens at Wiley, we published a four color business book that just went bonkers. And then all of a sudden, all these other four color books started coming out. So, right. you know, the, uh, the, I, I also tell authors the format, the, the tail doesn't wag the dog. Those would be great yeah. books, regardless of whether it was a fable or or a four color book. So don't focus so much on the format. Focus on uh, resonating with the audience. Hi there, Robin here. Have you been considering writing a thought leadership book that grows your business? How about writing a quality standout book with a real book publishing deal behind it that not only grows your business, but also grows your influence and reach? In case you're new to the Author's Corner, my name is Robin Colucci, and I help world-class experts write world-changing books and get them published. With over 30 years in the publishing industry, I've helped clients write and publish books with Big Five and other top publishing houses. Many have gone on to become New York Times, Amazon, and Wall Street Journal, as well as USA Today bestsellers. And others have increased their business income by 600 times or more as a result of their book being out in the world and the partnering work that they did with me and my team. If you are a top-notch expert who is ready to write your world-changing book, go ahead and book a free consultation call with my team today. 
We have a limited number of spots available, and we only take clients who are committed to the process and want to get their book started now. If that sounds like you, go to www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Go ahead and fill out the application form to be considered for one of our exclusive spots. Again, the link is www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Now, back to the show. So what do you have to say about memoir? Because I, I know a lot of people who are highly accomplished who would love to write a memoir, but I also know they can be really tough to sell. What is what is your point of view on that, and what have you seen in your direct experience? When, when I uh, first started at Wiley, I took over a list of books that was um, manufacturing-driven. This was the ISO 9000 days and the early days of Six Sigma. It was real heavily manufacturing-oriented in business. And I put up a little post-it above my phone that said, who cares? And what I meant by that was, whether it's a memoir or a business book, you have to see or try to see with the author who's going to give a shit. Right. A memoir is so, by its very nature, so personal, and people want to write a book because it's their legacy or whatever. But what value are you giving to the reader? Why would they invest their time and their money? to um, buy this book. So a memoir has mm -hmm. to be, other than a great story, what's in it for the reader? Why would mm -hmm. they invest their time and money for this book? Actually, one memoir that just springs to mind right away was The Other Wes Moore, which I thought he did a really brilliant job of tying his story to a bigger social issue, which I thought was very clever and well, well executed. And, 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 you know, for memoir, a lot of it is What's the story? What's compelling about the story? Um, exactly. For business yeah. books, it can be a little bit different. And business memoir is a whole other category. For business books, mm. it can be, what am I going to get from this as the reader? I'm not just reading this in general because I want to read something. I want to improve my management style, my bottom line. I want to make more money. I want to sell more houses. Whatever the skill or abilities you're looking for, to develop from reading this book. That's really the driver of the business book. Now, the business memoir is, I've lived this life. I have built this business or businesses. Here are the things that I've learned over the years about running or owning a business or starting a business, whatever. And these are things that maybe you could learn and apply to your business. But also, I think as importantly for memoirs or business memoirs, People want to read about the times when things didn't go well. No mm -hmm. one's perfect. Nothing more boring than reading a memoir or a business memoir where, you know what, every time I took a step, I stepped in a pot of gold. I never had any right. struggles. I never had any. That's not realistic. I mean, everybody, yeah. everybody struggles. Yeah. Everybody learns. You're going to learn way more when you face adversity than when everything's going well. Very hard to change when mm -hmm. things are going well very easy to change when, they, right. when you're experiencing pain or something is not going well. Yeah. And, and it also just makes the, the author not only more relatable, yeah. but more tolerable because who, right. who wants to talk to someone who's just, oh, and here's another wonderful thing I That's did. That's right. Or, or here's my picture on the book <laughs> and you're like, well, I don't really know who you are. You know, it's a, 
Uh, 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 oh, right, the picture on the cover. Yeah, and I, and I constantly try to say, and sometimes I say it in a nice way, and sometimes when they don't get it, I say it in a more forceful way, but less you, more them, meaning focus on the reader. Right. Like, yeah. Otherwise, this is navel-gazing at its highest level, and you're going to sell yeah. five copies of your family, and then that's right. it. <laughs> so in that regard, if right. you want a book where you're just recording your successes and a legacy piece, which again, perfectly fine. There are plenty of self-publishing tools available to yes, you. Absolutely. I was thinking about your Venn diagram again, and I think to me, the third circle is, is it relevant? Do you have a clearly defined audience right. that is looking for this book or looking for these solutions? That's right. Although it's funny, sometimes books end up being popular in areas that you, 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 you never would expect. And uh, I think one of the fun things about publishing from, from an author's perspective and a, and a publisher's, but mostly from the author's perspective is once you write the book and it's published, it's kind of not yours anymore. So right. yeah. you'll never know who's going to pick it up or what industry it's going to be in, what country you're going to, you know, maybe you get some translation, you know, it ends up being. A, do you have a, do you have a story that, that stands out for you of a, of a, a sort of a fun surprise that, absolutely. that you can recall? So one of my, one of my friends, good friends even to this day and one of my favorite authors of all time is a guy named John Gordon who writes a lot in uh, business and self-development and he mostly writes in parables or fables but not always so he had done a book with St. Martin's on like personal energy quasi health I guess uh, and then he wanted to get into the professional development business space so he had chopped they had chopped this book around and uh 10 or 15 or maybe more publishers rejected it. Myself and my colleague at the time, and, and she's amazing and runs Wiley now, a woman named Shannon Vargo. And if you uh, ever want to reach out to her at Wiley and pitch your book, pitch her. We spoke to John and he was, you just had this connection where you felt like, even though he hadn't done a business book before, he was going to run through brick walls to make this book work. And we hear that a lot. We We obviously, but there was something about John that was, endearing and you believed him and he had a good heart and has a good heart and you just knew he was going to do everything he could. So we, uh, I had, I remember presenting this book in front of a book called The Energy Bus, still successful today, million, million mm -hmm. plus copies sold. Wow. My publisher hated the book. He was like, great, another book like this. And I flippantly, he asked like, what's the difference between this book? And, and I flippantly said, well, this one has a bus. So we, we ended up doing the book and before it published, uh, and again, John uh, lives in Florida, he lives, uh, and then now in California as well, but hadn't really traveled overseas for work at all. A uh, Korean publisher came in and offered like $200,000 advance for the book. I think it's probably still the biggest in translation deal that Wiley's ever had. John, John John's not Korean. Uh, he's Italian and Jewish. He's never been to Korea. He doesn't speak Korean. Never worked for a Korean company for some reason, and we don't we don't know why this book resonated with at least two publishers, and they went after it. And the book actually ended up selling very well and earning out. But uh, after that, none of his books had that kind of um, advanced level. It was just crazy. Who knows why? It could have been these two companies were competing, or whatever, or buses were popular in in South Korea at this time, or whatever. But that was a surprise. And then, you know, the book was publishing and we, we still had Borders, the chain Borders still around. Oh, yes. Borders mm -hmm. and Barnes & Noble 
didn't believe him and believe us. And they said, we don't think this guy can sell any books. And they skipped the book in their chain entirely. So John got in a van or a truck and wrapped the truck with the cover of the book and drove all over the Southeast and spoke to schools and organizations and churches, five people, 10 people, 100 people. We did his book launch in a parking lot of a restaurant in Jacksonville. Um, and um, it took a year or so before it started to take off. Mm -hmm. And then for a good stretch of yes. like 12 years, every year books sold more than the previous year. Like it just, mm -hmm. uh, he was relentless and is relentless and just, it struck a nerve and it became popular in schools. Never thought it'd be popular in elementary school. And then we ended up doing a children's book. Became popular in church groups, wow. became popular in college and professional sporting teams hmm. and businesses. So that's, that was the surprise where you take a chance, you hopefully have those criteria that make you want to take a chance with someone. They understand what they need to do. They go above and beyond that. And then it resonates with the audience and then takes off. Very, very rare, very rare, but uh, it happens. Now, I wanted to go back to a point that you mentioned just now because he promoted it that aggressively for a full year. That's right. And I think that that is something that I've noted is a hallmark of books that not only do well, you know, the first year, but go on to become perennial bestsellers, right? And I can think of several books that were on the New York Times bestsellers list for five or six years after the author spent an entire year at least aggressively promoting the book. But the typical thing authors do is they promote it for maybe two, three months and then say it didn't work. That's right. What would you add to that? Because I'd love to hear your perspective on so, that. So uh, I have a, a friend that's a former colleague. And at the end of this, maybe I can just shout out a couple of resources for authors, companies. Oh, uh, yeah. But one of my former marketing managers at Wiley, a guy named Pete Knox, who I've known now for almost, I don't know, 15, 20 years. When I was leaving, he, he made these little snap, little rubber bracelets that were kind of madisms, which very flattering, but also very embarrassing. And, and one of them that I tell <laughs> authors a lot, well, two, I, two I tell authors because they, everybody's looking for a secret or a silver bullet or a magic pill. There is none. And you don't do one thing, mm -hmm. you do everything and you continually ideate and you try different things. But two important things I say is this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yes. Don't spend a year to two years of your life writing a book, working with a publisher. That takes a year. Getting the book out, book publishes. A weekend, you're disheartened because not everybody's fawning over you and you give up. That is terrible. And that is not, yeah. you, you need to be in it for the long run. You need to put the time and energy. Maybe 25% of a successful book is writing it and 75% is marketing. I'm not sure, but authors that have drive. That sounds about right. <laughs> and, and then the second thing, because yeah. you mentioned social media, I am not a big social media fan. I think it's kind of the sewer of technology. And certainly it's like taking a drink out of a fire hose at times with just the amount of data and stuff coming at you. When authors say, what's the one thing I can do besides everything, I say, Put butts in seats and books in hands. Amen. Don't discount the power of being in front of people physically. Even Zoom, not as effective. Yeah. Get people in a room or uh, office, talk about what your book is about, teach them something, and have them leave with a book. You will have fans, you'll get people to believe, then they'll recommend it to other people. And that recommendation yes. or what we would call big mouths 
is super valuable. You want raving fans and you want people to say, mm-hmm. you need to read this book. It's great. Yeah. And I think that's when a book tips over. I, you know, I can't help but think about Malcolm Gladwell's yep. tipping point where he talks about, you know, when you have enough people who've had that experience, then you get the benefit of word of mouth. That's right. And then it takes on a, its own momentum. But that takes a lot of time and consistent effort to get there and probably more so than ever because of so much noise. That's right. And I remember when that book was signed, I think the advance was a million dollars. And I know at Wiley people were like, that's insane. And I was like, I don't know, is it insane? Like he is a New Yorker writer. He is well regarded. This is super fast. We didn't bid on the book. We weren't offered the book. Yeah. But we did turn down four hour work week. Oh, ouch. You know, (laughs) but there's always, there's a story. It was pitched as a different book. We had like an hour to decide. Uh, oh, it wasn't okay. fully formed. Yeah. We hadn't had a chance to meet with Tim. And I mean, he's got a great yeah. agent and I don't have any ill will. Every If you've been in this mm-hmm. business long enough, you have turned down books that have been- That you wish you did have hit. But you've also published a lot of books that have not sold. So, you know, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, hopefully you're better than not in terms of picking books. Yeah. It's that success bias yeah, again, exactly. right? Like you remember the one that got away, but you don't remember the 50 you turned down who sold three copies. <laughs> well, 5,000, you know, it really just depends right, on, right. <laughs> uh, on how long you've been in the game and, yeah. and what you've seen. And right. sometimes you don't get, you don't get proposals sent to you. Sometimes there's something completely different. It's, it's, you know, you never know. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, like you said, Ben Bella does take direct inquiries. What are some of the things that authors should know if they were to reach out to you? So uh, I'm going to split Ben Bella into two just because Mm -hmm. uh, because of what I do. So Ben Bella total is Glenn Yesis and Leah Wilson, but primarily Glenn is the acquisitions editor. He's the owner of the business. He founded the business. He is way more well-rounded than I am. He loves science. He loves true crime. He loves biography, if it's good, or memoir. He loves uh, a lot of different veganism. He was early adopter of those books. So he has a wide variety of tastes that he publishes. I primarily stick to business and finance and then occasionally a memoir or something just because I'm interested or I know the person, et cetera. So on the BenBella.com website, BenBellaBooks.com website, there is a pitching BenBella link and you can fill out a questionnaire and it talks about who you are, what's this book for, et cetera. And no guaranteed response. It's only, you can imagine there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff coming in there. For me, I don't, right. I don't use that form. I don't typically like that form. I want a proposal, mm-hmm. but I don't want a big proposal. Mm-hmm. I want like five things in a proposal. And if it's more than 10 or 15 pages, I kind of think you're trying to snow me with stuff that like is just stuff. I don't need a hundred page proposal or 50 page proposal. So for me, it's who are you? What is it? What is your experience? Why are you the right person to write this book? what is this book going to do? What's the about the book? What is the table of contents? What do you are trying to accomplish with this book? And what is the benefit for the reader? Uh, And then give me an elevator speech. Why would someone buy this book? And if you say there's nothing else like this, then you need to go back and look because there is something like this. And if you say it's for everyone. If it's for everyone, it's uh, probably for no one. You can't boil the ocean. You can't boil the ocean. Uh, What are three or four books that are similar? Not competitive, or they can be competitive, but 
I have 30 bucks in my pocket. I'm going to buy a book. What are three or four books if I'm looking to develop the skill or learn something? What are some other books I'm going to buy? And then hit me with your platform. And your platform, don't skip over it. Don't fluff it up with social media stuff that doesn't mean anything. Don't tell me who's going to endorse the book and tell me that they're going to promote your book because they're not going to promote your book. Mostly they're going to promote their own book. So I'm looking at things that you directly do and control versus third party. I don't want to hear about third party people. I'm going to add, because in my own experience, I'll I'll check this with you, but don't put what you're going to do. Uh, It's it's almost impossible. Not, Not always. Uh, but almost impossible to build a platform after a book comes out. Mm-hmm. Build a platform before or as you're writing the book. Uh, and I used to say, I don't want to hear gonna do. I want to hear am doing. Right. Also, I will partner with the publisher to get on television and radio. We're your partner is your publisher. So no, what are you going? We know what we're going to do. And also, by the way, right. we can have the best marketing and publicity plan. But if for some reason the subject doesn't resonate with media, they're not going to cover it. So mm-hmm. it's not the publisher's fault. It's the book doesn't resonate with the booker of a show. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like today's world, mm-hmm. getting on the Today Show may mean a thousand books. 20 years ago, it could have been 10,000 or 20,000 books. Right. Getting right. on an hour podcast that is very focused on your industry can move more books in the Today Show. Huh. So um, yeah. don't don't always shoot for Oprah or the Today Show or whatever. <laughs> Those are very, very rare. Be an expert in your industry. Develop your or, or map out your targets, your customer types. And that's where you focus. And then if mm-hmm. it, you hit a home run there, then you start building out in other areas that you think have an affinity for your book. Yeah, I, I just had to laugh when you said Oprah because I remember earlier in, in my coaching career when Oprah was still on I main regular television. Yes. And, and what is regular television today? Right. You know, without streaming, live television, that's what they call it. Yeah. And, you know, I would always ask them to, you know, give me your dream list of endorsers. And by the way, some of my clients actually got people from their dream list of endorsers. Right. So it's a, it's a list worth making. And then after I did that for a couple of years, I started to say, give me your dream list of endorsers, except Oprah. Yes. Yeah. Anyone but Oprah, because I mean, everybody was, Oprah was, was on everybody. And you know list. what? It, it, it's interesting <laughs> because there was a time in the early 2000s where I remember someone, I can't remember the person's name, and I wouldn't out them if I did, but there was a gentleman that came around that was trying to develop a agency that was selling endorsements from popular people. Ooh. Um, fair enough. Yeah. But I yeah. think today, I mean, one of the pieces of advice I give to authors, and they don't listen all the time, which is fine. Like, it's just my opinion. I am wrong a lot. So I don't try to, I try to get my ego out of it as much as I can. But I don't think if I'm a reader uh, and I'm buying a business book, I don't know if seeing Adam Grant's name on the book is going to make me buy the book. I want to read from a real, quote unquote, real person that has gone through your program or read your stuff before or mm-hmm. met you. I want to know someone from a company that you've impacted. I think there's more value in that, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they're famous or not. So a lot of authors yeah. go after the big, big shots. They think it's going to matter. And maybe it's, and I don't discount this for them. Maybe it's for their own ego that they can say, hey, mm-hmm. so-and-so endorsed my book. That's great. I- I'm all for ego gratification for the author because it's a lonely world and, if it makes them feel great, that's great. 
but I don't think from a sales perspective, uh, uh, an endorsement matters that much. And authors go overboard and we say six to eight endorsements and they say, well, six to eight is good. How about 60? Oh gosh. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a job. That's a full-time job now. Right. And right. also what do yeah, you, that's, that's, that's a lot of front matter before yeah, they get to chapter right. one. Is what like, it is. Okay. What is, is this for your ego or, or, I mean, back in the day when, when we were in college a million years ago and you would open a textbook, you would see endorsements, a lot of endorsements, and it was at different professors at different schools. And that was done so that maybe you're giving them a little shout out and they were going to adopt your book at their school. So listen, if you can get the head of IBM or Google to endorse your book, and that means that they're going to bring in you uh, to speak and they're going to buy a gazillion copies, that's a great idea. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that really the best endorsement that you can get is someone who read your book, who told a friend yes, to read yes. your book. We published this really great author, Canadian author named Scott Stratton. And I say Canadian because I know it'll maybe I'll annoy him, but he's a proud Canadian, uh, a book called Unmarketing. <laughs> and I think one of the endorsements was on the back was from his mom. And it was just hilarious because <laughs> he's very irreverent and he pokes fun at people that are like too self-important and self-evolved. So I think the, it was like, this is the best book from one of my children or something. And I think maybe maybe he's an only <laughs> child or something. But I always, I, right, I always right. thought that was very funny and clever. The best book from my yes, favorite yes. child and he's an only child. Yes. <laughs> right. and, uh, I apologize, Scott, if you're not. But he, he's great. He's, <laughs> he's, very tr he's a great speaker and great author. Really great guy. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I cannot believe how fast this time has flown by. So I am going to throw out to sure. you my signature final oh, question, gosh. which is, Matt, what have I not asked you today that you would love to answer? Uh, I don't know. I, I think every conversation I have, whether uh, this one also or, or with uh, author or podcaster is unique. And, you know, I think part of it is my job is not to sell you on us or uh, me as an editor or Ben Bella or anybody. It's because it makes sense for, for us to work together. So I'm interviewing you as well as as an author. You're interviewing me. So ask any questions you want. And um, you know, as an author, your editor is it's a relationship. So you want to feel like they're trustworthy and honest with you. And there are times when you have to deliver information that's not great, and you want to have that kind of relationship where you're able to have those kind of truthful conversations. I don't know. I think just as an author, again, writing the book is is probably one of the more enjoyable parts. A lot of authors enjoy writing a book, some don't, but uh, one of the most enjoyable parts of publishing a book is writing a book. And there's a whole heck of a lot of work that comes after that. Yes. So don't yeah. give up. You're going to hear a lot of no's in this business and it's just some mm -hmm. guy or some gal's opinion. Believe in yourself, keep trying, and if all else fails, self-publish or maybe self-publish if you want to self-publish. Yeah. Fantastic. Great advice. This has been amazing. And uh, thank you for this insider's view into traditional publishing. And thank you for being with us on the Author's Corner. Thank you, Robin. Pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.